Welcome to Tech Support, the podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, where we encourage and equip people to interact with the biblical text. We are your hosts, Tim Martin and Brian LeMaster. This is episode one of our new series, The Bible in English. I'm excited for this topic because Christians today as a whole, I feel like have a lack of understanding of what went into their Bible that they're currently reading. Uh, Tim, who maybe I should call Dr. Martin for this series, uh, he hates that, but he's done a lot, a lot of study uh, on these topics that we're going to discuss in the series. So my role is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be more of the voice of the audience and ask qual- uh, follow-up questions instead of being an equal contributor to the discussion. So Tim, as we start off, I know you love this type of study and have spent a great deal of time studying the history of the word and everything that goes into us getting our English translations today. But why is a general under- understanding of these topics in the series that we're going to be doing, this th- three-week series, important for all believers? Well, it certainly is something of great importance to English readers of the Bible because they need to have confidence uh, in what they're reading. You know, 99.9% of Christians who are English-speaking persons uh, do not have the ability to read the Bible in its original languages, and so they're going to rely on an English translation for their beliefs. I mean, many, many uh, church leaders are going to do the same thing. Now, I think there has to be a great deal of caution in, in coming up with doctrine from uh, a translation of the Bible, but it is what most people have to conduct their lives to know what's pleasing to God in their lives, to how they're supposed to behave, the rules that God's given them to follow. So having confidence in that, the ability to understand understand where it came from, uh, the complexity of translations. There's so many things out there about this is the best translation of the Bible. And, uh, often I think that's humorous because it's videos made by people who don't have the ability or knowledge or talent to translate the Bible. So how can they be a judge of what's a good translation? And so uh, that it's very important because it is what, English-speaking people, Christians rely on uh, to do what they to do what God pleasing to God what and conduct themselves as Christians. So, what is a translation? Well, it, you know, simply put, you know, we're accustomed to translation. Kind of, we refer to translation as an object when we talk about it in biblical terms. But any of us who have ever dealt with someone who speaks a different language or have been to a country that speak a different language, we appreciate translation. We also need to appreciate that not everything is directly translatable. Uh, often, if, for example, when I've gone to Latin America uh, and I've, I've taught a class or something, I know the person translating in Spanish is also having to put it in Spanish that the people can understand the same meaning of what I'm saying. We can't use idiom and slang and, you know, I can't go to Latin America and say it's raining cats and dogs because then everybody's going to run for cover thinking there's animals fixing to fall from the sky. But how, how, how that's translated can be a challenge. And it's a real talent for somebody to be able to do that. So A translation is essentially moving something from one language to a target language, whether that's from Greek to English or from Greek to German or Greek to Italian, whatever that may wind up being, or to Latin, whatever that may wind up being. And it's been going on with the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, since the ancient times. Uh, There's been taking the Bible from its original language and moving it into uh, another language. And so it's just really moving. But it's also, as we'll talk about through this series, there's some interpretation has to happen because there's no such thing as a word-for-word you know, translation. You're having to bring over uh, an ancient language, an ancient idiom, and other things to a modern term. And English changes. The English of 1611, King James, is not the same as the English of the you know, 21st century. Yeah, so we know we have multiple translations today. If you go to Bible Bookstore, you got several options to choose from. But kind of walk us through the history, I guess, of our, our, the history of the English Bible. Like, what's some of the major differences over time. 
Okay, we'll do that. And I know that history can be a little bit boring, so I'll try to make this kind of interesting. And uh, it's easier when you've got like a video presentation to share uh, with that. But a lot of this information is available out there. But we should be very thankful. We're blessed to have the Bible in English. It did not come about easily uh, in coming into that. We'll talk later in other episodes about specifically about some of the modern English translations and how to choose those. Or And I always recommend choosing more than one. But uh, there was a need for the Bible in English in England. Uh, a lot of this began to take place close to and preceding the Protestant Reformation uh, because the Bible was only available to people who could read Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, and primarily even Latin. Uh, and so the average person could not read that. And so a lot of the catalysts, including the Protestant Reformation, the invention of the printing press, uh, religious clash in England. You know, you have Henry VIII rebelling against the Catholic Church because of the divorce situation, uh, the beginnings of the Anglican Church in England. We have Puritans around that time, uh, the, through this time of the Bible in English. And so uh, really we talk about a period leading up to the King James Version of the Bible in 1611, and then the King James Version remains, it, it, it's not dominant right off the bat, but it becomes very dominant in English churches uh, until the end of the 19th century. And then, so that's why we'll talk about some of those, what I call modern translations, 20th, 21st century translations later. But in brief, uh, the first person that we know of, of any substantial translation uh, of the Bible into English was John Wycliffe in the 14th century. Uh, and later he was branded a heretic. I believe his bones were dug up, ground into dust, and dumped into the Thames River in England uh, for translating. And then probably the most substantial work done on that was done by William Tyndale. His New Testament was translated uh, in 1526, so 16th century, we're a couple hundred years later. Uh, for his efforts, he was strangled and burned at the stake uh, in putting that in. But his Bible served as a basis and source for English translations for many centuries uh, after that, uh, after that, Miles Coverdale came up with a, uh, his Bible was the first one to have chapter summaries at the beginning of it. Again, that was in the mid-1500s. Uh, there was a guy named John Rogers uh, who put out the Matthew Bible. He used a, a pen name uh, to put it out in 1537. And then just about a little over a decade and a half after William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake, the Great Bible, which was called Great in 1539 because of its size, it was nearly the size picture, uh, uh, 11 by 17 sheet of paper that you use today. That's the size that this thing was. Maybe like a lot of our, we remember maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents had a coffee table Bible uh, that was gigantic. So that's why it was called Great. In 1539, so really about 13 years after William Tyndale, it's the first English Bible that was authorized for use in Anglican churches. So if Tyndale had just been 10 years later, probably, he may not have been killed uh, for doing it. It didn't take very long. And then leading up to the King James, uh, we have the Geneva Bible in 1560. It was kind of the first study Bible. It had maps. It had essays. It had introductions before, something we were very accustomed to, uh, uh, introductions before uh, each book, maybe some chapter summaries, some footnotes, if you will, uh, in there. And so uh, it, it, it kind of came up to about 1560. So before we leave that era, why was there so much persecution for the ones early on? I think that there's two reasons. Well, there's one reason you hear most popularly given, which I'm not sure I buy into completely. Uh, the most popular thing you hear is, well, the ecclesiastical, the church leadership did not want to give up the power of being able to interpret the Bible because they were the ones who were educated and could read it. And I don't doubt that, especially when you have a political situation like it was in England, where 
the head of the church is also the head of state uh, in the king, uh, whether that be under a Catholic like Queen Mary or under uh, an Anglican like King Henry VIII uh, or King James I. Uh, I think there's probably some truth to that, but also realize that just like the Roman Catholics told people, when you translate the Bible into a thousand different languages, you're going to have a thousand different interpretations. I do believe there was also a concern by, by good people, by good religious leaders, that you're going to put the Bible out there in the common person's language, whether that be English or it be a German translation like Martin Luther made uh, or a Spanish translation, whatever that may wind up being, is you are putting the Bible in the language of common people who may not have the skills and training to interpret the Bible. And so you do get a lot of different translation, uh, interpretations of the Bible, and it's out of control, I guess you would have. And in some ways, we can say that's absolutely true. We think about the democratization of English Christianity in America when, after the Revolutionary War was over, people not only wanted to be under, they didn't want to be under the British crown, they also didn't want to be under the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church. And so we have an explosion of untrained people going out and uh, circuit riders and this others preaching the Bible to people and interpreting in different ways. And we can see the repercussions of that. We have all kinds of different interpretations of the Bible. So I do think it would be considerate of us to think about there may have been some good righteous people that were concerned that if we put the Bible in the language of the average person uh, and they even just hear it in English, most of the people still couldn't read, they could even hear it in English, well, then all of a sudden you put interpretation in the hands of the masses as well, and that is dangerous to do, uh, and that's why you know you know we try to study the Bible and do things, and so uh, that's one of the reasons I think it's fouled. But I do think it's it's legitimate to say they gave up some some power as well to have that the the bad people get. One of the things about this Geneva Bible is King James the first didn't like it because a lot of the translation in it was read to be anti-monarchy uh, or against the papacy. Uh, in, in Rome, and so and King James I wouldn't have a lot of issue with that being an Anglican, but he didn't like stuff that was translated in it that seemed unfriendly to a monarchy, but it was an extremely popular translation of the Bible, a uh, very, very popular translation. In between that and the King James Version, we have the Bishop's Bible, which essentially the King James Version was a revision of in 1568. It was not as popular as the Geneva Bible, but it was authorized for church use. Uh, for the use in English churches. And so those are what we have in, in the time leading. And there were others as well besides these. These are kind of major ones. But there was a long period of time the King James Version wasn't the first English Bible. Uh, there were many before it, uh, up to about 250, 300 years before that. Uh, and, and people were persecuted for translating the Bible into English uh, before the King James Version. And so that's just kind of the time frame leading up to that. Uh, you know, there are a lot of books out there for people that are interested in this. Um, one of the ones I've read on the King James Version is really good. It's written by a journalist, uh, which is uh, good to read because you don't have a religious bias. I think it's called God's Secretaries, and it's about the translation of the King James Version. And it covers the politics of the time, uh, both governmental politics and also religious politics. Just to kind of give you a setting in the early 17th century, historically, we're talking about close to the time of Shakespeare. Remember, we have the, the settlement at Plymouth uh, in 1620, just a few years after that, uh, here in America. Uh, for those of you that remember Guy Fawkes Day or think about Guy Fawkes Day, the gunpowder plot where the Catholics in England try to blow up Parliament, uh, that's around this same time. There's a lot of, has been historically before King James first took the throne, 
He'd been the king in Scotland before he took the throne from Queen Elizabeth I. There had been a lot of issues between the Anglicans and the Catholics. And then within the Anglican Church, you had Puritans who had kind of broken away from mainstream Anglican Church. So a lot of religious politics going in. And also, like I said, since the head of the church is also the head of state, you also have general politics uh, involved and around that. And so he did dislike the Geneva Bible. Uh, Catholics were kind of persona non grata, if you will, uh, in England at the time. But King James I did commission, uh, I believe the number is around 54 translators that came in from Oxford, Cambridge, Westminster, uh, mostly Anglicans and some moderate Puritans were involved in these committees. There were review committees over these translators and then a general uh, committee. So a very good system to translate the Bible. I think as we look at English Bibles in our preface, uh, I never want a Bible just translated by four or five people because there's no way the four or five people are experts and all those. I like a translation made by 50, 60, 70 people where every book is interpreted by an expert in that language and that time in that book. So I, I think they had a really good plan. The basis that they used uh, was a 1602 Bishop's Bible, other English translations. They had a limited number of Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Uh, the Old Testament of the King James Version, I think, was primarily taken from the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, uh, in addition to what Hebrew it may have had. The New Testament uh, was translated from an edition of Erasmus's uh, Textus Receptus, or Received Text, is what that Latin translates into. That Greek trans that English translation from Greek of the New Testament began uh, came into being about 1516, uh, and then was revised all the way through the time of the King James uh, version, uh, and it is still the base New Testament text. And we'll talk about that later for the New King James version uh, and the King James version. It has its limitations, and we'll talk about that. They also made use of translations of the Bible in Spanish, Latin, Italian. Uh, Hebrew translations in Aramaic and Syriac of the Old Testament. Uh, and so they did use a lot of sources. Uh, it was a magnificent work of the English language. Uh, and even though it didn't take off right away, it eventually did become, and, and still probably is the most well-known and popular English translation. It was a history-changing edition of the Bible, uh, just a magnificent work, uh, the product of a terrible amount of work. And so even though I'm not a King James-only guy, and, and we'll talk about that in our coming up episodes, it is a magnificent work of magnificent Christians. If you can find a copy online of the great preface to the King James Version, it's just amazing to read the humility of these translators, the gravity that they realized that they were doing. Uh, and they said, you know, we're not here to make a brand new translation. We're here to make existing translations better uh, and, and hone them with resources. So an incredibly massive project. I can't remember the amount of time uh, that it took, but the completed version in 1611, uh, it is just a great work, and it reigned really supreme until about 1881, uh, the late 19th century that we have that. There's some, the printing press also caused some problems. The King James Version obviously was uh, revised and edited over those centuries. Uh, one of them is called the Wicked Bible in 1631, where they left out the knot in one of the Ten Commandments and said, Thou shalt commit adultery. Well, men everywhere were celebrating, you know, that. But, you know, one thing about a printing press, if you get it wrong, you could chuck out a bunch of uh, versions of it. There's one in 1795 of Mark 7:27, where Jesus says, Let the children be filled first when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman. Well, they put a, a K in for the F, and it said, Let the children be killed first. And so there's some crazy versions uh, of the Bible out there. And so 
even though I, I use the New King James Version as one of the many translations that I use, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about source text, I think, in our next episode, but it is a magnificent work of English. All right, so when thinking about the King James Version, and others like it now that we would say in our modern translations, what's the major differences between that and what people would view as the Catholic Bible? Well, I'm trying to think with the King James Version, you know, when people typically talk about a Catholic Bible, uh, let's clarify what we would say about that. The authorized English version, I think, in Roman Catholic Church right now is known as the New American Bible. Uh, And uh, it includes books we call the Old Testament Apocrypha. And uh, I'm not exactly sure, and we'll talk a little bit about that Apocrypha. I'm not exactly sure. You know, Roman Catholics, I don't believe, hold those books to be sacred uh, scripture. Uh, maybe there's some different, I know there's some different opinions about those books between the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, but there are some different books in there, uh, that additions, if you will, but in, that come from the time between the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament period. Uh, they're in there. They were also included in the early versions of the King James Version. Uh, the Apocrypha were in the King James Version, I really think, up until maybe the 1800s. Uh, maybe the 1700s or 1800s, they were part of the King James Version of the Bible. Now, they're not part of any Protestant English translation other than the New Revised Standard Version. If you get a New Revised Standard Version, which itself is a descendant of the King James Version, it will have the apocryphal books uh, in there, books like Tobit or Ben Sirach, uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. You'll see those in there. Now, I have a New Revised Standard Version is my primary study Bible. I like to have those in there because it tells me a lot about the history between the Testaments. It tells me about Jewish theology and interpretation uh, of the Old Testament books and their existence. And so that's kind of the primary difference between the two of them. Uh, The source text uh, for a a Roman Catholic Bible in the New Testament, I would assume, uh, would also involve using the Latin Vulgate uh, in addition to Greek manuscripts. Uh, and probably the Septuagint in addition to Hebrew manuscripts. For Eastern Orthodox Christians, they still use the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, as their Old Testament basis. So if you went to a Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, their Old Testament is not based off Hebrew. It's based off the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which was the translation of the Old Testament, the Greek version used in early Christianity uh, for the first few centuries of Christianity. They didn't use the Hebrew Old Testament either. So tell us more about these books that would be maybe in some Bibles and not the others. Like why? why yeah, why they're not included. How should they be viewed? Yeah, and I say Apocrypha. That's the nickname. You may also see them called Deuterocanonical, meaning like second canon uh, in, in some Roman Catholic uh, and maybe Greek Orthodox conversations. Uh, these books, uh, they're found in early uh, Christian versions too because they're in the Septuagint. Uh, of the Old Testament. They're included along in that, and so sometimes they're often included in ancient Bibles, ancient codices, Christian Old Testaments as well. And so they've been around for a long time. They don't appear to be regarded as Scripture. When I say the word Scripture, I mean authoritative, inspired books of the Bible that are used for instruction of the church, instruction of Christians. Uh, But they are viewed as very valuable historical books. Uh, Some of them I mentioned earlier, Tobit, Sirach, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, there's two or three additions to Daniel. Uh, one Baruch is one. Uh, and I did have a note here. It was included in the King James Version up through 1885. Uh, but they're not regarded as canonical or authoritative by Protestants. 
And so uh, I think Martin Luther's German Bible had him in the appendix. Uh, and maybe even a note that said, I'm not an expert in Luther's German Bible, but maybe even had a note that says, these are not to be read as scripture, but they are informative. And they are very informative. We learn a lot about the Jewish rebellion against their Greek overlords in the second century BCE from the book of 1 Maccabees uh, and about the Hasmonean period where the Jews ruled themselves for about a century leading up to the time of the, of the Romans becoming dominant. Uh, a lot of the things are really interesting on how Jews thought during that time between the Testaments. They're formative uh, for Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism that Jesus and the apostles lived under. So they have a value to them, uh, but they're not views as authoritative. So you won't see them for X, example, in a an English Standard Version, the ESV translation, or the New American Standard uh, translation, or the NIV, or the CSB, many of these translations, because Protestants don't just even think they belong in the Bible at all. And if you put them between the covers of a Bible, people can think, well, these are, are biblical books. You really have to note what those are. So they're called Apocrypha. Apocrypha means hidden, uh, but it's just kind of the nickname uh, for this group of books. There's also a, a big volume, a big bulk of books known as the New Testament Apocrypha as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can talk about them if you want to. But uh, So why? what would be some clues to us when we look back in history to know that they weren't seen as authoritative? Well, we don't find it yet. We don't find anybody in early Christianity or in Judaism that refers to the books as being authoritative. You know, we have the books we have in our Old Testament because it's the ones that the Jews agreed uh, were canonical. Now, for example, like in Josephus, I think he lists 22 books of the Old Testament, but that's because, keep in mind, First and Second Samuel were one book, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles was one book. The 12, what we call the 12 Minor Prophets, was the book of the 12. It was all one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. Uh, and I think Jeremiah Lamentations was one book. And so there's a fewer number but the books we have that we think are canonical are because the Jews thought they were canonical. And they did not think these other books were. Uh, they did come along much later uh, in doing that. I don't remember, I don't know, I'd have to check to remember whether or not we see any of these books included amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. Perhaps we do, perhaps not. What would the Dead Sea Scrolls be for people that aren't familiar? Well, there's scrolls found around the Dead Sea. <laughs> not they, yeah, that's right. No, in the mid-1940s, a whole lot of uh, ancient uh, copies of the Bible and ancient scrolls about the community that lived near the area of Qumran in the southern part of the Dead Sea and then several other locations around the Dead Sea. You know, it's hot, it's dry, it's a good place for things to be preserved. Uh, there's been copies uh, of books of the Old Testament found. Now, they are the oldest copies of the uh, Hebrew Bible that we have. Uh, there's also other documents that have been found amongst them just about the beliefs of that group. We're not sure exactly who that was. Many people think they're a group called the Essenes, but we can't necessarily prove that. Uh, but I don't I don't think I don't yeah, I don't yeah, we cover more of that. It's a really good thing to cover when we talk about footnotes in the Bibles. So some people maybe if they flip through the history channel or get on a odd videos on YouTube, sometimes we'll see a claim of, hey, there's this nether gospel that we found or this other book, maybe it should have been in the Bible. Is that what you were kind of referencing earlier and kind of walk us through uh, these extra books that sometimes people will claim? Yeah, we sometimes we refer to as New Testament Apocrypha or Apocryphal Gospels uh, of that way. And there's some other writings uh, of that way. And so uh, in addition to Old Testament books like the Apocrypha, there's also a group of Old Testament books called the Pseudepigrapha that are a lot of apocalyptic literature, testaments. If you've ever heard the book of uh, One Enoch or First Enoch, it's included in those 
uh, books, and so those aren't canonical either. But the New Testament, Christianity has some writings as well. As you can imagine, Christianity had a lot of writings uh, that took place, and so we have different groups uh, books. Some early Christian writings were bound up, not as Scripture, uh, not ever quoted as Scripture or regarded as Scripture, were found bound up with some of the ancient Old Testaments that we, uh, excuse me, New Testaments that we have, like Codex Sinaiticus, for example, uh, and many other codices. We have right there with the New Testament, sometimes there are, uh, are other books included that obviously the church thought were worth reading, but we don't think early Christianity ever, we don't have any evidence that early Christians viewed them as canonical or scripture uh, or being authoritative. Some of that are The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a book about a man having visions, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, the writings of Ignatius, the writings of Clement of Rome, uh, often called the Apostolic Fathers in, in a grouping. Uh, they weren't regarded as canonical, but they were informative, and they were early Christians commenting on the scriptures. And there's many things, for example, we've talked about some of them in our, in our other podcast, but there were some non-canonical gospels probably the most popular out there, like you said, History Channel or online. There's going to be the Gospel of Judas. Uh, there's going to be the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, there's got, there, there are dozens of so-called quote-unquote Gospels. Uh, and one of the reasons they're not included, uh, I, I had a teacher at uh, Heritage Christian, Dr. Gallagher, who made a really good comment one time. He said, if you think those books belong in the New Testament, you go read them, and then you see if they match up with what's in the New Testament in their teaching theology. The other thing is they were written much later. They weren't written during the apostolic period. Many of them weren't written until second, third, fourth century time period. Some of them were written very close. Some of them are not gospels, but are writings from Gnostic Christianity, uh, which is a group, a heresy of Christianity that believed in this transcendent knowledge of God. A lot of these were found in Egypt uh, in a place called Nag Hammadi. And so a lot of people say, why did they exclude it uh, in this? And, and some people have some good cases of well, eventually somebody decided what Orthodox Christianity was, and any book that didn't meet that Orthodox rule uh, got kicked out. But there's other reasons they're not included. They're not quoted by early Christians as being Scripture, uh, whether we look at uh, Jerome or, uh, or uh, Irenaeus or Tertullian and others. Uh, they may refer to them. Now, there are some references to them, so we'd be wrong to say that they don't ever refer to them. The Gospel according to the Hebrews and the Gospel according to the Egyptians, for example, uh, is one that are mentioned in some early Christian writings, but they're never regarded or quoted as Scripture in early Christianities, and they're written much later. And, and sometimes they don't agree. And even Jesus' behavior in some of them seem very odd. Uh, there's some sayings, Gospels out there that are just sayings of Jesus. I've read those, and what they look like is some, somebody took the Sermon on the Mount, put it in a blender, and poured it back out and said, okay, here's some sayings of Jesus that are all mixed up. Some of them don't even make any sense with Jesus' teaching uh, or his theology. So there's a lot of those out there. Uh, they can be learned from. I think early Christian writings can be learned from because we can understand how did early Christians start thinking about the Bible and all the different ways that they began to interpret the Bible. So it is informative, uh, but not Scripture. And so I think it'd be wrong to say, well, they just got booted out of the Bible. They never belonged to the Bible. Yeah, and the concept of them having other books and resources like should make sense to us today because I know a lot of Bible classes will use a devotional book or I know in my library I got multiple commentaries and just different writings that are helpful to my spiritual life, but I don't view them as authoritative. No, I, they may have a source uh, in Christianity. And I want to say some of the, hey, we got books out there in Christianity that make up all kinds of nonsense about the Bible. And so it's not unusual. We got people out there that make up all kinds of nonsense. So the fact that there may be some 
I'll call them heretical writings, uh, non-Orthodox writings that don't fit the apostolic writings, the New Testament writings, um, that, that you have to make a faith-based decision to say, I'm going to believe that these are the correct writings. Uh, and so they just don't match up with them. And they're like something today where somebody takes something in the Bible, misconstrues it out of context, uh, and use it. So we shouldn't find it too strange. That's after 2,000 years of Christianity, people are doing that. Imagine in a day where you don't have a uniform canon of the New Testament scriptures or the scriptures readily available to the average person. Christianity is a brand new religion. Can you not imagine that people would sometimes run off in the wrong direction about their Christian beliefs and then write about it? Uh, so before we uh, wrap up, what else do you have for us? Well, I'm trying to think about what all we had talked through and doing. I know people are already asleep uh, <laughs> listening to the podcast, and, and the next two won't have as much uh, of that uh, history. Think about what we'll discuss in the two upcoming episodes that are very important. I often joke with classes when I teach this about you need to read the preface to your Bible before you buy it. Uh, I'm not going to say what the best translation is to me if you really want to you know, learn doctrine and stuff like that. You need to learn to read Greek and Hebrew, but uh, they need to understand what they're buying. I said, I often joke, you know, you go read 500 reviews before you buy a blender on Amazon or something else. Are you not at least going to read the preface to your Bible? I want Christians to be able to understand, okay, what are the sources behind the text? What do these footnotes mean? What do these brackets mean when somebody says this wasn't included in the earliest manuscripts? You know, I want to be able to explain those, understand uh, what is the Septuagint? When I see that written or I see the Roman, Roman numeral LXX and there's a difference in the Old Testament that says Hebrew reads this, but the the Septuagint reads this and Dead Sea Scrolls read that, what does that mean? Uh, and understand those sources. Modern English translations, especially of the New Testament, have the strength behind them of over 5,000 Greek manuscripts uh, and probably in the, in the order of 20,000 other translations of the New Testament. We're not as strong in the Hebrew Bible, but we need to understand what is behind those. And so people can understand their footnotes and understand what they're reading and why it's beneficial to have multiple translations to read in English uh, and understand the sources behind it and translation philosophy. Uh, one of the things I did write down is kind of thinking about the art of translation, how challenging that is. And that may be something for another uh, pot, another episode, or it could be here very quickly, but it's not an easy thing to translate. And so if you wanted to talk about that in this episode, I don't know if you want to spend a little bit of four or five minutes talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. We can go ahead and jump into that. I know we'll touch on translations in episode two as well. Yeah. Just the base. You asked me at the beginning, I should have shared this. There's an art to translation uh, and good translations are going to be done by people who are selected that are experts in that genre of literature. For example, I want somebody that's an expert in Old Testament wisdom literature and, of course, Hebrew grammar and syntax to translate Ecclesiastes. You know, and maybe they've had a lifetime of writing on Ecclesiastes and they've researched it and their their thesis or their dissertation was on Ecclesiastes or they've written commentaries on it. That's who I want translating Ecclesiastes. Uh, that's who I want writing that preface to Ecclesiastes so I can understand it. But there's an art to it as well. Obviously, somebody has to have knowledge of the original languages uh, and not just the knowledge. They have to be an expert. You know, I often hear people say, well, they think they can touch on a word in an electronic Bible and read it in Hebrew and all of a sudden they know more than the translator does. 
there is a great deal of knowledge that you need to have about the grammar and syntax and vocabulary uh, of that language and, and been spent many years studying that. Um, the Old Testament and New Testament have been translated in many different languages. We'll talk about some of that. But I wrote down four challenges that I think are face translators, and we should appreciate in that. One of them is you have to have an expertise in the vocabulary, grammar, syntax, syntax and context of the original language which can vary depending on the book you're reading. Even in the New Testament, there's narrative, there's uh, epistolary or like epistles or letters, there's apocalypse uh, written down. So being being an expert in that, one thing about the New Testament that's good is it was generally written in the same time period. Uh, Whereas the Hebrew Bible, you're written over a great span of time. The world of Abraham and the world of Solomon were two different worlds. In uh, thinking about the environment they were in and separated by, you know, over a thousand years in time, there's things that are different. So they need to be experts uh, in that context. They also need to have expertise in the vocabulary, grammar, syntax, and context of the target language. Now, there are English people who go clean up behind translators because uh, if you translate very woodenly or very literally, it doesn't read or flow very well. So you also, in addition to translators with an English translation, there are people who are experts in English grammar and say, okay, here's how this would flow more slow, more, more smoothly in English and understand the audience of 1952 and the audience of 2011, 2021 can be very different in how they understand uh, the English language and certain words and how they're used. So you got to be an expert. You also have to deal with idioms, which are like phrases or slang uh, metaphors. How are, you know, what does that metaphor mean in Hebrew or to a group of people in Israel? that how you bring that into a modern English metaphor, ancient measuring systems, ancient geography. There's a lot of translations that have to, a tra- all things translators have to move into uh, that language. There's textual variants that you have to deal with, and we'll talk more about those in later episodes. And then there's a hard and fast rule I mentioned earlier. Every translation is an interpretation. So a good translator also has to have a knowledge of the theology of the book that he is translating or books that he or she is translating uh, into English and understand, okay, this is what it meant originally theologically, not just, you know, word the words, but what was this trying to teach and how do I convey that properly in an English translation? So there's always going to be an element of interpretation uh, as well. And then we'll cover this more in episode two, but there's a variety of resources uh, that would be used if I was translating Mark I'm not only going to have Greek manuscripts of Mark that I'm going to use or a base Greek manuscript. I'm also going to consider the Latin Vulgate. Uh, I may consider uh, the, the language, the translations of Mark in Coptic or in Syriac or in, in, in other ancient languages. Uh, and I may consult ancient commentaries uh, on that to try to get So there's a lot of work. It's not just sitting down. I've translated four or five books uh, of the New Testament and some of the Septuagint. And I'm just translating, and I'm not having to smooth it out. I'm not having to make make it make sense in English. But if you're really going to do that, we're talking about work that people put years uh, into translating a, a book of the Bible. And so it's very translated. So we need uh, it's an art, and we need to appreciate those people. Uh, you're not smarter than your translators, uh, and, and they have put a lot of work into it in a quality English translation. Yeah, I think that's my big takeaway from this episode as well. When I think about the people that lost their lives. For us to have the Bible, I think about the hours that people put into studying to make sure that we can understand God's will and have that in our lives. And I'm reminded of a story my mom told me. She did uh, mission work in Belarus at one time, 
and they wouldn't put their Bibles on the floor because their access to it was more limited than what we have. You know, I have tons of Bibles, so I don't mm-hmm. think about it as much. And it's, you forget everything that went into us having the availability to have scripture uh, so accessible today. And it's, it's truly a blessing to be able to open it up and come to know uh, God's will uh, for us in our lives. You got any other closing thoughts? Yeah. You, what you said is, you know, we had a missionary we supported here at this congregation for many years that had to put the Bible into a language that the, the written language didn't even exist for this language. So he had to create a written language and then translate the Bible into that. I think the number is well over a thousand languages on earth right now that the Bible does not exist in, that hasn't been translated no. to. And so we, you're right. We should feel very honored and very privileged to be able to read the Bible in our common vernacular and be able to, 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 to have access to it because there are many, many people who have no access to the Bible uh, in their language. And we live in a very literate society. Now, the United States, um, amongst industrialized nations, may be very uh, common to have the level of literacy, but there are thousands of cultures and, la- and languages around that, that the bulk majority of people aren't literate enough to read on their own. So they have to rely on uh, religious leaders, uh, Christian religious leaders, to read that. And many times those Christian leaders may not have the Bible in, in, their, tra- in their language uh, to be able to use, or they've got a very, they're having to translate it as they go. And so we are spoiled because, you know, we, we got, we're sitting around thinking we need to throw these Bibles away. But there's people in this world that, no, we don't throw, no, throw a Bible away. We don't have them. Uh, we can go buy a Bible down at the dollar store for a, a dollar or five dollars or something. There are people that would have to spend a month's pay, you know, have to make sacrifices to have a Bible. So you're right. We should be very thankful for that. Uh, one thing that maybe if you're new to listening to podcasts, you may not know, and this is going to be something we're going to try to do in this series, is to put um, some resources in the show notes. You're going to find that in the description of each episode if we reference some different resources. Uh, look for that in that uh, area. Um, if you have questions or suggestions for future topics, let us know by emailing us at podcast at mountjuliet.org. Uh, we appreciate the feedback and the communication we are getting from you all. Uh, To our fellow students of Scripture, thank you for joining us for tech support. We hope you will join us next week. This is a podcast of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. You can find more personal growth resources like this one at mountjuliet.org slash resources. The Mount Juliet Church of Christ exists to glorify God and make disciples by helping people grow in Christ, love one another, and serve others.